Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the preached Word of God. And so, believing that promise, let's turn and open the Scriptures together once again to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Our passage this morning is going to be 1 Corinthians 2, 6-16. through 16. It's a fairly long passage for an epistle, so definitely open up and follow along with me. We're going to try to stick pretty close to the text. We're going to refer to it several times all throughout. It's going to be a little bit uh, more, I don't know, exegetical this morning, uh, looking at each verse, carefully understanding the argument at hand. 1 Corinthians 2, 6 through 16. Um, you, might have remi- uh, you might remember, as we've made our way through 1 Corinthians, and specifically last week, it may have sounded as though the Apostle Paul has begun to downplay the role of wisdom in the life of the church. Uh, remember we saw last week, he, he keeps telling them, I, when I came to you, I didn't come to you with lofty speech or wisdom. I didn't come to you with plausible words of wisdom. And the implication is, look, this love of wisdom or these plausible words have kind of led to all your problems here, people. And and so we might be led to think at this point, well, is wisdom bad? Are we to be, you know, spiritual and not really intellectual? Should uh, Should our focus simply be on Jesus and not on Doctrine, which inevitably lead to controversy and division. Well, that's what he turns to address right here. The role of wisdom in the church. The positive side, the good role of wisdom in the church. And he does so here, beginning in verse 6, down through verse 16. This is God's Word. Let's hear it and receive it in faith. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. Although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would have not crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thought except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now, we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Amen. Let's pray again. Father, our God, we ask You, through the Holy Spirit and in the Lord Jesus Christ, that You would grant to us the mind of Christ. 
the mind of Christ we just read of here, the wisdom of God and the things of God taught by the Holy Spirit. Lord, would you give what you speak of here in your word, would you give it to us today? Would you give it to us right now according to your mercy as we pray in Christ's name? Amen. Well, broadly speaking, mankind's search for wisdom is one of the most defining characteristics of what it means to be human. Sets us in distinction from the animals. We all have an innate desire for wisdom. We all have an innate desire in our being to search out and unravel the mysteries of the world around us. And that's part of what, what drives each and every one of us every day. Whether we're searching for wisdom through technology, through science, whether we're searching for wisdom just for, for help in the Christian life, whether we're studying, whether we're exploring nature, the search for wisdom is part of living as a human being. And at the heart of this search is this desire to understand this deep longing, longing that we have for, for meaning and for the purpose of life and to find answers to the things that are most difficult that we struggle with day to day. And what I'm saying is that our desire for wisdom and our, and our part of our our longing as human beings is not simply that we want information as if we're curious, but we pursue wisdom and knowledge and understanding because we're seeking emotional and spiritual and personal growth and health. Whether we're doing so through technology or the study of medicine or psychology or whether we're just talking about life hacks, right? The day-to-day -day motivation to just get organized and get our life in order and keep going. We all want answers that we might grow, that we might overcome them, that we might find comfort in this world. It's no surprise then that as we have seen here with the church in Corinth, they were in love with wisdom. They valued wisdom. They pursued wisdom. They exalted wisdom. And you know, it's also clear that in some respect, it was this quest of wisdom that was destroying them from the inside out. They had begun, as we have seen, to regard the preaching of the gospel as milk. It's necessary, everybody knows that, but it's kind of basic and simple. It's not really practical, it's not really exciting. It's not really, you know, helpful in relation to all the other wisdom out there. We'll also see in the book of Corinthians how they had begun to exalt some in the church as the true spirituals, the wise. And they place others on this lower plane of spirituality. They begun to exalt certain gifts within the church as really important while the other gifts as kind of, you know, in some way despised or unnecessary. And all of this had led to a quarreling. It had led to a hierarchy in the church. It had led to the fact that they were, they were gathering different factions around different leaders and different personalities and, and different ways of speaking, rhetoric, and oratory. And that's why the Apostle Paul comes in here to talk about wisdom. 
and to talk about their search for wisdom and to talk about the place of wisdom in the role in life of the local church. And the irony is, is visible on the surface here. They loved wisdom. They valued wisdom. They loved genuine spirituality and spiritual gifts. And all of this is a good thing because those are things that, that God is willing to give. And He loves to give. But they were looking for those things in all the wrong places. Paul writes here to redirect their focus. Where are these things truly found? Where do they truly look like? And his argument is very simple. True wisdom, the highest wisdom, is found in the cross. True spirituality, true giftedness, centers on a crucified Savior. And so what we see in this section particularly is that that the Apostle Paul takes wisdom and our quest for it, which is innate to us, he takes it out of the realm of the merely philosophical or rhetorical or practical And he centers this quest and the reality and the ultimate reality of wisdom upon the historical work of Jesus Christ and upon all the salvific blessings that he gives us in the Holy Spirit. For it's only right here when when we come back to Christ crucified and and we come back to this understanding um, that the Holy Spirit works to impart wisdom within us, it's only then will the church be led away from pride and disunity towards humility and unity. And so the question for us this morning is pretty simple. Do you desire wisdom? Do you desire understanding? Do you want to make sense of the world around you? You want to find comfort in the midst of life's most difficult questions and pain? Well, you need to come back to Christ and Him crucified. And you need to receive, by faith, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge that are found in Him through the indwelling Holy Spirit. That's what we see here from our passage today. Three headings, or three points to help us navigate what He says through these uh, 11 verses. The design of wisdom, the disclosure of wisdom, and the division of wisdom. Design, disclosure, and division. We're going to spend most of the time on the first point, because in the first point, he basically says everything he's going to say. But let's begin there. In verses 6 through 10, we see the design of wisdom. By design, I mean the purpose, the goal of wisdom. In verse 5, Paul had just said, as we saw last week, he doesn't want their faith to rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. But now he turns to say, okay, but wisdom isn't bad. And our desire and quest for it isn't bad. Look at verse 6. Yet among the the mature, we do impart wisdom. Although, here's the qualification, it's not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age which are doomed to pass away. Right away, we see contrast between two different types of wisdom. There is a a wisdom that the gospel does impart. But it's not a wisdom of this age which is doomed to pass away. It's the language of of God essentially um, abolishing it. God judging wisdom. And so ultimately looks forward to the eschaton when that will be complete. So there is a wisdom that that the gospel imparts. What is that wisdom? Well, it's very simple. It's the message of Christ and Him crucified. And and that's really the point of the entire section. In fact, that's the point of the entire sermon. 
Alright, so just, I'm sorry if, if that's simple and what else do we need to see here, but that's the point. And if you get that, you get everything. The epitome of wisdom. The highest wisdom. The uttermost wisdom. The loftiest wisdom in the entire universe is found in this, this historical message of Jesus Christ crucified. And, and if, you know, if we spend just a moment thinking about that, isn't it obvious? It's so obvious. Why do we even need to say it? The God and creator of all things became man. Wow. Not only did he become man, but he had suffered and died to satisfy divine justice so that we might live. Is there anything more awe-inspiring? More profound? More life-changing than that? The historical truths of the gospel, they're more profound. And, and let me just say this. Let me, let me bring it home to you right now. It's more profound, but it's more relevant in the grand scheme of things than any other question, any other struggle, any other reality in your life right now. The gospel is the highest and loftiest wisdom. Of course, if the rulers of this age, the people of influence, the people of power, the people of great learning, the great people in the world would have recognized that Christ is this ultimate wisdom, they would have never put him to death. So the wisdom of God is not like the wisdom of this world. The wisdom of God centers on a person and his work within history. And that's the overall sense of what Paul says here. But think more particularly about his wording. He says, to the mature we impart wisdom. Who are the mature here? What is he talking about? Um, well, remember, as we've worked through this, that in Corinth they evaluated maturity based upon rhetoric. Powers of persuasion. Those who were experts at teaching the wisdom of this world. Uh, later, we'll see that they value maturity as those with the greatest spiritual gifts. And their idea, then, of maturity is what has led to this division and pride and disagreements within their, body, uh, within their church body. So, so Paul is kind of turning this idea on his head a little bit. And he's saying, while you think maybe that you have advanced to maturity by moving beyond the gospel to these really helpful and bigger and better things in life... Paul's saying, no, 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 subtly. That's not maturity. That's actually immaturity. Maturity are those who love the cross. We may think that spiritual maturity are those who are wise. They can discern truth from error. They can see behind people. They can unravel what most people don't know. They have great learning. They have great oratory. That's really the wisdom of this age, ultimately. It's doomed to pass away. True maturity is not just a superior wisdom. True maturity is found in the cross. Those who have the mind of Christ, which we'll consider in a moment what that means. So, I want you to understand here, when he says mature, he's not saying that, he's not dividing the church into classes. As in, okay, these people, they're mature, and these people who are not mature. Um, he's not really talking about sanctification. 
He's basically saying we all stand equal under the cross. All who believe the gospel, all who have received this Holy Spirit, are equally mature in this sense. The problem is some of you aren't living like it. Did you see then how that flips kind of upside down? Our innate ideas of what is wise and what is foolish, what is mature, what is immature, what is spiritual, what is unspiritual. It's not, you know, the wisdom in the eyes of the world. It's not the powerful. It's not those who are in charge who possess true wisdom. It's, it's those who simply trust Christ and walk in the footsteps of his humble obedience. But the point of all this is that this is by God's design. Look at verse 7. We impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. By secret and hidden. Um, Paul's not talking about something mystical or magical or esoteric. You know, This isn't Gnosticism here. You know, Gnosticism is that we have these special group of people who have this you know, this extra special spidey sense, I don't know what to call it, right? Intuitively, they're just in the know and other people are in the dark. No, this hidden secret wisdom is the plan of God to send His Son for the salvation of the world. That's the secret and hidden wisdom. We know this because of what he says in verse 8. None of the rulers of this age understood this. None of the rulers of this age understood this secret and hidden wisdom. For if they had, they would have not crucified the Lord of glory. It's secret and hidden because nobody sees that it would be found in the cross. Right? It's secret and hidden, and yet it's laying on the face, like wide open on the face of everyone who comes in contact with the Scriptures and the knowledge of God. In, in, the, in the declaration of the gospel. Hiding in plain sight is a better way of putting it. If the rulers of this world knew the secret hidden wisdom, they would have never crucified him. They would have never crucified the Lord of glory. One of the highest and loftiest titles you can give to Jesus. Glory belongs to God alone. And to say it belongs to Jesus is saying this is God in the flesh. The secret and hidden wisdom, and yet we know from the promises of the new covenant, they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. They shall all be taught of God. In Christ and in union with Him, we have all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. At the cross, we see God's ultimate design for salvation and the ultimate renewal and redemption of all the cosmos. Is there any greater wisdom than that? No. That's the secret and hidden wisdom of God. It's found in the cross. And, and this is part of God's eternal plan. It wasn't revealed until Christ came. And it's not revealed, as we'll see in our next point, uh, two points, until and unless the Holy Spirit reveals it to people. That's God's design. That's what God decreed, verse 7, for our glory. Not for our personal glory, before end time glory, glorification. That eternal plan of God that has intruded into this age and has begun to work all things new, evidenced by the raising of, of, of our souls to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That, that glorification process that's already begun. God designed this for our glorification. 
And Paul brings this point to a conclusion here in verse 9 and 10 when he says, Don't you know that it is written that what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love Him? These things God has given us through the Spirit? Paul doesn't quote a specific passage here. He kind of like puts a, two, a few passages together and kind of summarizes them. But his point is like, this is supported in the Old Testament. God prepared and designed this all along to come to us through the Holy Spirit. We do not come to know the wisdom, the true wisdom of the Gospel through what we can see with the eye or hear with the ear or imagine in the heart. It would have never even entered our hearts that God would take His only begotten Son to humble Himself to the point of death on a cross to die for His enemies that we might be saved. The Gospel, the epitome of wisdom, must be revealed to us through the Spirit. You're not going to find it by seeking wisdom through things that you see or listening to the philosophies and wisdom of this world, or even imagining what God might be like, and I'm sure that He loves me, and this is God's plan for my life. God reveals Himself through the preached Word and the historical facts of the Gospel imparted to us in the Holy Spirit. And yet, don't miss the application of this. The most important aspect of it. Who does God reveal this to? Who is this wisdom designed for? Verse 9, for those who love Him. For those who love Him. The epitome of wisdom, the highest of all wisdom, it's not a matter of being convinced intellectually. I've said this many times before, atheism is not not the result of men not being convinced that God exists. And you will never win someone to the kingdom through your arguments. People are not saved and brought to a knowledge of the truth because they're convinced of the facts, ultimately. It's a matter of the heart. For those who love God, they receive this wisdom. For those who trust God, they receive this wisdom. That's what God has designed not for the smartest, not for the wisest, not for those who pursue wisdom better than everybody else. It's for those who love God and trust Him. It all comes back to faith. And so, again, as I said earlier, Paul takes wisdom out of the realm of the philosophical and the rhetorical and the abstract and even the practical and he directs it, says true wisdom is found in the historical work of Christ and the blessings that he gives in his Holy Spirit. It's for those who love him and who trust him. Don't pursue wisdom that is passing away. Don't live as though wisdom depends upon wi- on, the, on the standards of this world. Look for it in Christ and him crucified. This wisdom centers on a person. And work that out in how you treat one another in the local church. This is God's design. Secondly, and again, we'll try to move quicker here because Paul kind of, I don't know, expands and repeats himself. Um, But secondly, we see the disclosure of wisdom. The disclosure of wisdom. 
And the point I want you to see is that the world and the rulers of this world didn't know this wisdom, but it's only disclosed to us through the work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Look at the end of verse 10 through verse 11. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Is there anything in all the universe more wise than the thoughts of God? He made the world and everything in it. He upholds the world and everything in it. He's the source of all wisdom, isn't he? He's eternal. He's unchanging. He's omniscient. He is wisdom. But the point here is that if wisdom essentially is God's, all wisdom comes back to him, how are we going to know it? It's with him. It's not with us. Well, God must reveal it then. And he uses this central, uh, this very simple analogy. Um, if you want to know what I'm thinking, or I want to know what you're thinking, um, somebody's going to have to speak. Right? That person must reveal what's going on in their heart. And they must do that in the form of words. Uh, maybe you've spent time around someone uh, before who, who doesn't speak. You know, maybe you spend some time with them and maybe after a little while they start to open up and all of a sudden they start talking and, you know, have you experienced that before where now you get an entirely different perspective on who this person was? You're like, wow, I never knew this about you. I, I, I totally expected all the wrong things. That's the picture here. You, you can walk around and you can talk all you want about wisdom in the ways of the world. Everybody has an opinion, right? Well, God is like this. Well, truth is like this. This is the purpose of life. This is what's most helpful in life. Everybody has an opinion. But you don't know the thoughts of God unless God actually speaks. And Paul says this is the work of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit searches the depths of God. And just briefly here, consider how uh, Paul upholds the Holy Spirit as divine. Right? He is described here as doing intelligent activity. The, the work of a person. He searches something out. Right? A force does not search something out. But also he is um, omniscient as well. That's something describing a person. The third person of the Trinity. He knows all of what God knows. And He reveals that to us. That's His job. To reveal to us the counsels of God. The person and work of Christ. All the wisdom of Holy Scripture. That's, that's the role of the Holy Spirit. That we might know God. So that we might understand truth. So that we might be wise. And so the point, the application is really simple. If it's not through human wisdom... If it's not through rhetoric that the depths of God are known, how is there pride? No human being can claim, you know, like, like a special skill or insight. I've got, I've, I've, got, I've got a corner on the Holy Spirit. Because the Spirit is the one, ultimately, who chooses when and how and how much to reveal to us. 
This is reinforced in verse 12. Look at it again. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. The Spirit of the world is just a reference to, you know, the wisdom that's doomed to pass away. The natural man. He's saying, Christians are different. We belong to another age. We belong to the age to come. The age of glory. We've received the Spirit of that age so that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. With the emphasis being here on God giving. And God giving freely. We don't have to climb to the highest mountain, right? To sit alone by ourselves and have a great view so that we can be alone with God and find wisdom. We don't have to climb into heaven and pull Christ down. We don't have to go to the depths of the earth and pull Him up from the dead as if we have to go search, as if we have to find it on our own, as, we have to, as if we have to merit it or we have to do good works. This is given to us and brought to us and laid at our feet freely in Jesus Christ. God's come to you. Wisdom has come to you. The problem then in Corinth is not ethical ultimately. You just need to obey this law and you get your act together. It's because they didn't understand this truth right here. That God loves to give freely. They didn't properly value that in Christ crucified is everything that they need for life and godliness. They didn't understand the, the nature and the benevolence of God as a giving God, as a loving God. No wonder they were selfish. No wonder they were self-centered. So Paul writes, not, not just to shame and correct them, but so that they might be enamored with the love and mercy of God. Because when you're enamored with the love and mercy of God, then, then all the matters of life and godliness then are seen through that lens. Look at verse 13. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. We don't just know wisdom, but we proclaim wisdom. We don't speak in worldly terms, but we speak as being taught by the Spirit. In other words, we speak the Gospel. We speak according to the Scriptures. These are spiritual truths to people who are spiritual in contrast to material. And if you think about the wisdom of this world, right? They're, they're, in, they're evacuated, the wisdom of this world, with this life and this world. But Paul says we belong to an age, a different age. This is why, as we, as we, as we come back to what we've seen all along, the, this whole first three chapters call us to make the cross of Christ the center of our hearts, the center of our homes, and the center of our churches. Because it's through that message that God imparts true wisdom. It's through that message that the character and the love of God is put on display. It's, it's through that message then that, that true Christian humility and love is born in us. And it's through that message then that we are enabled to see rightly everything else in the world. So Paul wants them to see that again. Cross, Christ, love, freely given, work of the Spirit. It's all of grace. It's all of mercy. 
It's all of, of His doing. He wants us to see that so that we might be led out of pride and self-seeking into humility and, and, and love and service to one another. So we've seen the design of wisdom and the disclose, disclosure of wisdom. Third and finally, he ends by highlighting the division of wisdom. And this is in verse 14, 15, and 16, the end of this chapter. The division of wisdom. Uh, to bring this all home, he's got to make a comment um, on the negative side. He's talked a lot about the positive side. The Spirit freely gives all of these things. But now a note about the negative side. Verse 14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The flip side of the fact that God must give wisdom is that it is impossible to have wisdom apart from the work of Christ. Apart, it's impossible to have wisdom apart from the work of the Spirit. The natural person stands in contrast to the spiritual person. The natural person is, is man left to himself. It's all of us in and of ourselves apart from the renewal and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Without the indwelling Holy Spirit, people do not accept the things of God. Uh, the word accept here means to welcome. Um, it's used in reference like welcoming a guest into your home. Without the Holy Spirit, you don't welcome the message of the cross. It's foolishness to you. It's absurd, or it's not really helpful, or it's boring, or it's irrelevant, or if it's maybe superstitious. You don't welcome, the natural person doesn't welcome the gospel apart from the Spirit. But not only is, it, is he, you know, not, doesn't welcome him, but the focus here is he's not even able to understand them. So man at his worst doesn't welcome the gospel, but man even at his best isn't even able to understand the gospel. He doesn't have the equipment. This is why Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again to see the kingdom of heaven. To see in that section does not mean to visit. Like, you must be born again to enter the kingdom of heaven. He does say that. But he also says to see it, to understand it, to perceive it, to know that it's even there. I mean, Nicodemus was staring at the kingdom of heaven in bodily form. And he didn't understand. And Jesus says, you don't understand because you haven't been born again. Sinners must be raised to life in the Holy Spirit before they can perceive and understand to know and accept the things of God. Again, faith and salvation is a matter not of the head, but of the heart. God must open our eyes to truth. God must give us a new heart and a new spirit. God must raise us from the dead. And, and this is in line with what Paul has said all along so far that we've seen. Don't you know that God has called you? Don't you know that God has chosen you? Don't you know that God has revealed this to you? Don't you know that the only difference between you and them, those who crucified the Lord, Lord of glory, is that he, he revealed himself to you by grace? They crucified Christ because they could not discern spiritual things. And as I said a moment ago, the, the world, the natural person is fixated on this life. That's what worldliness means. Don't think it just means things like drinking, dancing, smoking. 
sinful thing, sensual thing. Worldliness can mean just overly concerned with legitimate world things of this world, material things of this world. Man's quest for wisdom, what can it do for me now? What does your gospel do for me now? How does it fix my life? How does it give me what I want right now? How does it heal my pain? How does it solve my problems? How does it solve society's problems? If your gospel doesn't have legs, I don't want it. But Paul said all along, the gospel concerns chiefly not the things of this world, but of the age to come. And the Holy Spirit is the agent of the age to come. And the natural person cannot see beyond this life into the age of co- to come without the Spirit. They don't have the equipment. Have you ever watched a, um, a concert um, on TV or a video of it when, when the sound is off and you can't actually hear the music? Or maybe watched a video of someone dancing or playing a mu- musical instrument and, and the sound is off? Um, Sometimes it can look pretty ridiculous, you know? Uh, they're moving, contorting their body, right? Maybe there's a guitar, you know, uh, gif, you know, in the sense of like uh, they're going off and they're playing and they're just all involved in the music and you can't hear the music. And it's like, man, that really looks ridiculous. It's impossible to judge a musical concert or the playing of an instrument if you can't hear the music. That doesn't mean you get everything wrong. You might be able to say, you know, well, they play that instrument gracefully. Or they dance gracefully. Right? Or the way that they move, you know. I can see some beauty in that. But if you can't hear the music, you can't judge how they're playing or what they're singing. And that's Paul's argument here in this sense. They don't have the equipment. They might get some things right, but they don't have the equipment to get the ultimate things right. Verse 15, the spiritual person judges all things, but he himself is judged by no one. The person lacking the Holy Spirit cannot discern and judge spiritual things because they're missing the most essential part. But the one who has the Spirit is able to judge all things and is judged by no one. Now, that does not mean that he now has the answers to everything. That does not mean that he cannot be judged by someone else, like we're accountable to one another. Paul is just saying, like, in relation to the ultimate things, the eternal things, if we get the cross right, we get everything right. And we are free from the evaluation and standards of the world of what it means to be wise and what it means to believe and what it means to live the Christian life. Apart from the indwelling Holy Spirit, The natural person is not equipped to scrutinize what is wise and what the church should be about and how Christians should live and what Christians should believe. So why then are you moving beyond the gospel to bigger and better things as if the world has this important voice that you can't live without? Everything you need is right here. And Paul brings this to a conclusion which will be our conclusion as well in verse 16. When he just sums up and says, Who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct Him? But we have the mind of Christ. 
He quotes Isaiah 40.13 here, which is a rhetorical question where the expected answer is, who is able to understand the mind of the Lord and instruct Him? No one, obviously. But Paul says, but we have the mind of Christ. Through the Holy Spirit, we are able to understand the mind of the Lord. Here's another reference to the deity of Christ. The the mind of Yahweh is what's referenced in Isaiah 40.13, but now Paul says this is Christ. Well, what does it mean to have the mind of Christ? And that's where we're in today. It means all the things we've talked about before. The Spirit searches out the deep things of God and freely gives to us the things of God. The true and ultimate wisdom that is found in the Gospel and in the Lord and through the Holy Spirit. But what does it really mean to have the mind of Christ? It's not super spirituality so that you can rightly judge and discern all things. It's not answers to life's greatest mysteries and most difficult questions. It's not the practical help that you need to get your life in order and live a life flourishing, your best life now. Paul actually tells us what the mind of Christ is in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. He says to them, have this mind among you, which is yours in Christ. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but to also to the interests of others. Have this mind among you which is yours in Christ, because Christ, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That is the mind of Christ, and that's how it centers on the cross. It's not wisdom and philosophy and facts and practicality and helpful. It's not a higher attainment of the Christian life. It's not super spiritual Christians. It's something that we all have if we are believers through the Holy Spirit in Him. And it's something that we have together. It's not plural. You all have the mind of Christ. It's we have it together. In communion together. We share it. And we are united by it. The mind of Christ is modeled on the cross. Humility, submission, love. The mind of Christ is modeled and focused on the communal, corporate, church benefiting, never self-exalting, personal And this mind of Christ is humility in every respect, self-giving, serving, counting others as better than yourself, doing all within your power for the good of others and the good of the community of the whole. That is true wisdom. And that's why nobody has it apart from the Spirit. That is true wisdom. When you humble yourself and you look out for the needs of others greater than, than, than your own, out of love and submission and obedience and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the highest wisdom. That's the greatest wisdom. And that's all you need. 
as the Lord Jesus said Himself, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? The servant. As Christ is the greatest servant. And He calls us to walk in those footsteps. So brethren, this morning, what is wisdom? And where and how do we search for it and find it? I hope you've seen it centers on Christ crucified, received by the Spirit, and it spills over. Not in having a great mind and not being super theological or super spiritual or super helpful or super practical. It spills over the greatest and wisest among you as in the most humble servant among you. And if you're pursuing wisdom, not in that way, you're going the wrong direction. But the joy and hope of this is that everything that God requires of us, He gives us. He gives us. Receive it by faith. Receive His love and benevolent giving to you this morning. Receive the wisdom from God. Receive it and be enamored with it. And then go. And go. Go and do likewise. Amen. Well, may God give us all this mind of Christ and the spirit of humility and the wisdom of God. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray.